If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. We're in a regular exposition of sermons uh, through uh, this Gospel. Last week we considered together Matthew 3 verses 13 through 17. I'd like us to read just the last couple of verses of Matthew 3 to set the context for the passage we'll consider this morning in chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. So please turn to Matthew 3, we'll begin reading in verse 16. We're breaking in here at the moment of Jesus' baptism, and then this passage will flow into the occasion of Jesus' wilderness temptations in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along as I read Matthew 3, beginning in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to to him, all these things I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, here we are, your people assembled before your word now. Do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Teach us what it means that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It is because we believe this that we come before your word now, praying that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a certain kind of introduction to some sermons that I find personally obnoxious. It is the kind of introduction where the preacher uh, reads the passage of Scripture, and then it sort of proceeds this way. Uh, he says something like, forget everything you think you know about this passage of Scripture. And then he proceeds over the course of the sermon to uncover all sorts of hidden meanings in the passage and uh, all kinds of things that you yourself may not have uh, seen uh, there. And uh, one of the things I fear about that kind of approach to preaching and that kind of introduction to a sermon is that it often tends to put on display the cleverness of the preacher himself. Uh, But then maybe a a far greater um, 
disadvantage to that kind of thing is that uh, the congregation themselves feel disempowered to actually read the Bible and trust that they can profit from it on their own. They need the, the seminary trained guy uh, to show them really what is there in the Bible, but they're not really equipped to see for themselves uh, what the Lord has for them. So that kind of, you know, uh, uh, forget what you know about this text. I'm going to show you what it really says. Uh, that kind of introduction is generally unhelpful. That said, I'm very tempted to do that this morning. And the reason being uh, because this passage in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, I think is often misunderstood and misapplied. Uh, so I would say most of the times I hear texts from this passage employed, uh, they're often employed improperly. And more than that, I think like the big headline news in this passage is often missed. So I think most people read Matthew 4 as a kind of manual for us, God's people, on how to fight temptation. Okay, well, this passage isn't exactly that, though there are some things I think we can learn for how we ourselves are to fight temptation. But that's like the third or fourth thing down the line I think we're to get out of Matthew 4. There are like way bigger fish to fry in this passage than finding in it some kind of manual for temptation. Now, I, I want to uh, exculpate myself from that kind of error I identified at the start of this message by saying hopefully by the end of this message, the things that we see in this passage, you'll think uh, not, oh my goodness, I never would have seen that, has someone not pointed it out to me, but rather, well, how did I miss that? It's right there in the passage. So I hope I'm going to show us things this morning from Matthew 4 uh, that you will agree are pretty clearly there in the passage itself. Now, this is a well-known passage. Uh, even folks outside church communities uh, probably know, at least a lot of people will know, that at some point Jesus was tempted by the devil uh, in the wilderness. Uh, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include uh, to some degree an account of Jesus' wilderness uh, temptations. And in all of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this episode from Jesus' life and ministry is given a place of special significance, particularly in introducing Jesus to the reader. So we're still kind of in the introduction of Matthew's gospel and the introduction of who this Jesus is and what he's going to do and what his life and ministry is going to signify. So this morning, to better understand this passage, I'd like us to, uh, first of all, observe three things by way of context. Then I'd like us to look at the three temptations themselves, and then we'll have three implications for our lives, okay? Three things by way of context, the three temptations themselves, three implications for us. Last week's sermon was on the Trinity. I felt inspired, and so I have a trinity of trinities for the outline this morning. Consider with me first, number one, let's observe the context of these temptations, and three things by way of context. First of all, notice this. The Holy Spirit stages this confrontation. The Holy Spirit stages this confrontation between Jesus and Satan. Look again at Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went, out, went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, we considered this verse last time we were together, and we observed that this was not the first time Jesus was exposed to the Holy Spirit. Rather, this is a special kind of filling and anointing. The Spirit came and rested on Jesus, remained on Jesus, and is anointing him with presence and power to fulfill his ministry and mission as the Messiah. Then look immediately at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus, freshly anointed by the Spirit of God, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so Jesus did not somehow fall prey to Satan. 
Jesus did not become the victim of circumstances. The Spirit of God staged this confrontation between Jesus and the devil. This is why Jesus was led into the wilderness. This is all part of the Father's plan for Jesus. Jesus will engage with Satan in conflict at the outset of his ministry. And he will have the victory over Satan at the outset of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasize this point. Jesus is engaging in confrontation with the devil, and he will prevail in his confrontation with the devil. Now, if you know the Bible well, or if you've been with us for the last few months, all kinds of alarm bells should be going off in your mind. Now, why is that? Because in many ways, the plan of redemption starts with Genesis 3.15. What is revealed in Genesis 3.15? that there is going to come this seed of the woman, this son of Eve, who is one day going to engage in conflict and confrontation with the serpent, with Satan, and he's going to prevail over Satan. Where Adam failed, he will succeed. And so throughout the history of the Jews, they're looking at different confrontations that different ones had with Satan, and perhaps they think, is this the one who will crush the serpent's head? Is this the one who will finally prevail over Satan? Oh no, he failed. Well, perhaps this one now who is in conflict with the devil, he will succeed where Adam fell. Oh no, he too sinned. Well, now as Jesus is in conflict with the devil, now as he has been identified as the Christ, the Son of God, it's as though all of heaven and earth are looking on to see, is he going to be the one? Is this that long-awaited seed who will prevail over Satan? So the first thing to observe is that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to fulfill his mission. There's all kinds of redemptive historical significance to what's happening here. All right, second thing to observe by way of context. Jesus' status as the obedient son of the Father will be questioned and vindicated. Jesus' status as the obedient son of the Father will be questioned and vindicated. Not that he is God's son, but that he is God's obedient son. That's going to be questioned and challenged by Satan and will ultimately be vindicated in this passage. Look again, chapter 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We emphasized last week that thing that God is pleased with in his son is that he's the obedient son. He comes to do the will of his father to succeed where Israel had failed. Then look at verse 3 of chapter 4. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now you understand this, right? The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't always arrange the content of their gospels in a strictly chronological order. Okay, so they have some editorial arranging of material to advance their particular literary purposes among their audiences. They're not making things up, but they're arranging the material in certain ways to establish certain points and to reveal to us certain things about Jesus and his ministry who he is and what he came to do. So there's something Matthew wants you to see in putting these two accounts side by side, the baptism and then the wilderness temptation. Jesus has just been declared to be God's son for the first time in this gospel. God approves of him. God is pleased with him. Here is the obedient son of the father. Now Satan wants to challenge him on precisely those grounds. He wants to challenge Jesus as the obedient son of the Father. If he can ensnare Jesus into disobedience, he's just compromised the Godhead. This is game, set, and match for Satan. If he can get the son to disobey the Father, well, forget about our redemption. Uh, Forget about obedience under the point of death 
on a cross. Forget about this whole idea that he'll be a new Yeshua, a new Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. If he disobeys his father, he's not qualified to be our savior. And so it's on precisely these grounds Satan's gonna challenge him, try to trip him up to ensure that he cannot save his people, but that they will stay in Satan's bondage forever and ever and ever to get the Son of God to fail. Okay, that's the second thing, my point of context. Now third, so we've seen the Holy Spirit stages this confrontation. Jesus' status as the obedient Son of the Father will be questioned and vindicated. Now the third thing by way of context, this passage, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, this passage picks up certain themes and motifs from Old Testament history. This passage picks up certain themes and motifs from Old Testament history. Now we need to be careful here. Uh, There is a trend in our day among preachers and theologians who seem to be obsessed with multiplying sort of highly exotic and fanciful connections between things happening in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and things happening in the Old Testament. There's a way to do this that is just kind of wild and out of control. Under every single rock, there's some connection to something that happened in the Old Testament. Well, we need not go there. The Bible establishes pretty clearly for us numerous ways in which Jesus, in his work and in his ministry, fulfill aspects of the Old Testament. There are numbers of ways the gospel writers will establish connections between Jesus and the Old Testament. The most obvious way is through direct citations of the Old Testament. This happens all the time in the gospel accounts. This has happened a good seven or eight times already in uh, Matthew 1, 2, and 3 that we've seen. Uh, So like in the beginning of Matthew 2, it's said in Micah 5, verse 2, that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. And sure enough, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's fulfilled in Jesus' experience. There are direct quotations, citations from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. But there's a second way in which Jesus is seen to fulfill aspects of the Old Testament, a second way uh, gospel writers will connect Jesus to the Old Testament, and that is by way of illusion. Not illusion, I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, but illusion. Uh, The gospel writers will allude to certain things in the Old Testament and identify those things as having their fulfillment in Jesus. So for example, when Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, he, uh, uh, in verse 50, uh, breathes his last, he yields up his spirit, and what do we read in verse 51? The uh, veil of the temple is torn in two. Now that's not a direct quotation from the Old Testament, that's an allusion to a reality present in the Old Testament, namely that there was this curtain that separated people from the holy of holies in the temple. And what's the implication? Now that Jesus, our great high priest, has offered up the final sacrifice, there is free and open and unfettered access to God through his death, through his blood. That's how an illusion works. Okay, I think in this passage we have two big illusions that are taking place. And I think the more you think about it, the more you will see these illusions to be valid. First, you have a Jesus as the new man. Jesus as the new Adam kind of theme going on here in Matthew 4. This comes out very clearly, I think, in Luke's gospel. Luke gives his genealogy in chapter 3, and he connects Jesus to Adam. The last line of the genealogy in Luke 3 is that he's the son of Adam. And then the immediate next verse is the wilderness temptation, signaling to us, I think, that where Adam failed, the first Adam, the second Adam will succeed. He's put Adam in our minds, right? Well, I think if you think about this more and more, you'll, you'll notice certain parallels and contrasts between Jesus as the second Adam, the new man, and Adam as the old man. Uh, the first Adam, for example, was tempted to take and eat. And so was the second Adam. 
He's tempted in his confrontation with Satan to take and eat. You'll also notice contrast. Uh, the first Adam was tempted in a garden surrounded by food with all kinds of blessing and security and stability. The second Adam is tempted in the wilderness with no food in sight. Parallels and contrasts. But of course, I think the primary link we should see here is in fact with Genesis 3.15. Uh, there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And now here is Jesus, that seed. He has arrived on the scene. He's engaging in conflict with the devil, and he will not fail where the first Adam failed. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The new man will prevail over the serpent where the first Adam capitulated and failed. But then there's a second allusion or theme or motif that's picked up from the Old Testament here that I think is valid. Uh, you have here a sort of Jesus, not just as the new man, the new Adam, but as the new Israel kind of theme in this passage. The true and better Israel, the obedient son of the Father. Jesus being obedient where Israel was not. You remember we observed this some weeks ago that Israel at many points was said to be God's son. Numerous points in the Old Testament, Israel was God's son. And what's emphasized usually when Israel's sonship comes up is their disobedience. Israel was the disobedient son of the Father. Well, Jesus will be the obedient son. Uh, furthermore, in the Gospels, we see Jesus often in some ways, in some places, sort of recapitulating Israel's history. His life becomes a kind of microcosm of the Israelite story. So we saw this in Matthew chapter 2, those of you who were with us. Uh, Out of Egypt I have called my son. A citation from Hosea 11.1, 1, which was a reference, of course, to the Israelites being called out of Egypt. But it's applied to Jesus. Jesus is seen as fulfilling that verse in the ultimate sense. He was exiled to Egypt, and he comes back. Again, his life is a kind of microcosm of the history of Israel. Well, how do we see that here in Matthew 4? Uh, Jesus is then led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was led into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested by God. Well, Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, again, a microcosm, a smaller version of the history of Israel. He will be tested in the wilderness as well. Furthermore, the three Old Testament passages that Jesus is going to cite in response to Satan's attacks and his temptations are all taken from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which are chapters that focus in a major way on the call of Israel to be faithful to God. Is Jesus perhaps preparing us to recognize that where Israel failed, he will not? I think that's going on here. I leave those illusions with you, but I think they're valid. I think they're going on set the context for this passage. So that's the context, three things we've seen by way of context. Now consider with me the passage itself, and let's look at the three temptations that Satan brings to the Lord. And again, our, our first interest here is to understand more about who Jesus is, how the word is being used, and then down the line, what we might learn by way of example. Okay, so let's try to capture in these three headings the essence of these three temptations. What was each temptation really, okay? Number one. The first temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness in the face of immediate circumstances. The first temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness in the face of immediate circumstances. Look again, chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, demand these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the essence of the temptation here? It is to doubt God's faithfulness in the face of immediate circumstances. What are Jesus' circumstances? Well, he's in the wilderness. Uh, exactly what that means may not uh, uh, ring in our ears as much as it would in the ears of those reading this. The wilderness was associated with all kinds of spirits and jackals and things like that. It's a dangerous place to be. It's where people go to die or to be exiled. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, in his humanity, he is intensely hungry and vulnerable. Don't think, kids, this is important for you to understand. Don't think, well, yeah, for Jesus to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, that's like, like him skipping lunch. He's kind of like a superhuman. Uh, no, Jesus was fully human. And yes, it is possible to fast to, from food, not from water, but to fast from food for 40 days and 40 nights and still live. And Jesus would have felt exactly how you would feel at the end of 40 days and 40 nights without any food. He's intensely hungry. He's vulnerable. And so the tempter chooses this hour to attack. Uh, and maybe there's a small lesson there for us. I think Satan usually attacks, not always, but usually attacks when we are most vulnerable. Uh, he's going to attack when we're exhausted, or in the context of chronic pain, or maybe immediately after a fight with a spouse, uh, or when financial difficulties sort of wrap their cord around our neck. He doesn't typically make his rounds on our best days. So Satan is targeting Jesus' felt sense of need, an aspect of deprivation in his immediate circumstances. He's hungry. Of course, we know Jesus, as we already observed, in going into the wilderness, is fasting in submission to the will of his Father. His Father called him to this. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. He's there in obedience to his Father. He's there through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I remind you again, everything you see Jesus doing and saying, he does and says in obedience to his Father. And so what is Satan's angle here? He tempts Jesus to step outside of his Father's plan. Okay, if you are the Son, well, take matters into your own hands. Uh, act in independence and autonomy that's rightfully Yours. You're the son of God, aren't you? You have the power to turn these stones into bread and to relieve your present distress. And besides, you can do whatever you want. You don't need the Father's permission. You're hungry. Well, take what's rightfully yours, Jesus, if you are the son of God. Now, in this, uh, you can see Satan introducing an element of doubt. Uh, he's tempting the son to doubt the faithfulness and trustworthiness and provision of the Father. He's tempting Jesus to take matter into his own hands. God will not give you what you need. You need to address your circumstances yourself. And again, perhaps there's another lesson here for us. The devil doesn't usually say to us, uh, you know, here's a great pile of moral filth. Why don't you dive headfirst into it? He's more subtle than that. He loves to introduce an element of doubt to get you to second guess uh, what you think you know about God. Did God really say uh, Jesus, would it be so wrong? Would your father object if you as the son took what is rightfully yours? He's crafty. He's a skilled liar, and he loves to deceive. So this is the temptation in the face of present unhappy circumstances to take independent action apart from his father's plan, to step outside of his father's will. Well, what does Jesus do in response to this temptation? Uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. 
verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the original context, Deuteronomy 8, I'll read a little bit of the wider context. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says this, uh, God speaking through Moses to his people Israel, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, the issue wasn't about physical bread. It was about trusting God to supply their needs. The Lord called upon the people to trust him again and again, which they repeatedly failed to do. Jesus, as the new Israel, a true and better son, will not fail. He knows this to be true. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which in the context means, and this is crucial, the word of God is so important that if ever there is any sort of tension between what the word of God demands and all the apparent demands of my immediate circumstances, the word of God has to win hands down. That's the basic principle. God is faithful. God will do what he says. You can trust him, even if your apparent circumstances fly in the face of that trust. When there is a conflict between what you see with your eyes and feel in your heart and intuit about your circumstances and the word of God, God's word must win. Faith in God requires that when his word comes into tension with what we want in our immediate circumstances, we trust his word. And friends, on occasion, this will demand sacrifice. Uh, this has to be worked out in experience, not in theory. It is when you are confronted with what you so desperately feel you need and your circumstances demand, and you find that that's in conflict with the word of God, then you will know if you truly trust the Lord and his word, or if all this stuff about the authority of the Bible is really just a creedal point for you. Do you really trust what God has said, even when that seems to contradict and fly in the face of what your present circumstances and feelings are telling you? Things are difficult financially. You're under great stress and pressure. And all of a sudden at work, there's this convenient way to get ahead. It'll involve just a little bit of cheating, just a little dishonesty, just slanting things ever so slightly, using somebody in a way they may not even detect or know that you're using them. But it'll get me what I need. I'm supposed to provide for my own, aren't I? The Lord want me to have what I need, so what if I bend the rules a little bit? And my wife, my husband, has been so cruel to me lately, uh, just not giving me the affection and the affirmation and respect that I ought to have. And doesn't God want me to be affirmed and appreciated and respected? Doesn't God want me to be happy in my marriage? And here, here is this other person that comes into the scene, uh, so kind, so appreciative, so affirming. It's just a little sexual tryst on the side. I can't be blamed for that. Doesn't God want me to have my needs met and my needs fulfilled? 
Friends, there is sin that you can commit. It's easy, it's convenient, it will address your felt needs in your immediate circumstances. But then you remember the word of the Lord. And you say, for God's sake, for his word's sake, I will not do this thing. It may mean that I feel deprived of some things I think I should have. It it may mean that my immediate circumstances continue to be so troublesome and distressing to me, but I will trust the Lord's word. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. Well, Jesus passes this test. Where so many have failed, he succeeds. He will not deviate from his Father's word, his Father's plan, in order to satisfy his felt needs. He will believe God better than he feels. He will believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, now the second temptation. The second temptation. The first temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness in the face of immediate circumstances. Well, how should we understand the second temptation? Satan's second attack. Number two, the second temptation was to twist God's word into a kind of test of God's goodness and trustworthiness. The second temptation was to twist God's word into a kind of test of God's goodness and trustworthiness. Look with me, if you will, at verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now I think this is surely a kind of visionary sort of experience. I don't think that then uh, Jesus and the devil walked the 70 miles over to Jerusalem. You couldn't really actually stand on the top of the pinnacle of the temple. Anyway, probably a visionary experience. And Satan said to him, verse six, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, what's the essence of this temptation? It is to twist God's word into a kind of test of God's goodness and trustworthiness. Jesus just got done restating his commitment, his faith in the word of God. So Satan quotes the word of God. Do you think Satan doesn't know the Bible? Uh, Friends, Satan knows the Bible uh, better than most of us. Uh, All the seminary exams that I took while I was in seminary, Satan could have aced those exams. Satan knows the Bible. He knows it enough to twist it. He quotes Psalm 91, which tells of God's protection of his Messiah. I really find it quite humorous. If you look at Psalm 91 in the original context, Satan stops just short of quoting verse 13. You know what verse 13 says? You will tread on the lion and the adder. That's a snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. He doesn't quote that verse. But what is Satan doing here? Satan is encouraging Jesus to test the veracity of the scripture. Well, you believe it, don't you? God said, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, he said, uh, you won't die, he won't let his Messiah get injured, you won't dash your foot against his son. Go ahead and test that out, Jesus. Test the veracity of your Father's word. And of course, what Satan is doing here is distorting the scripture. He's using scripture as a pretext to tempt Jesus to test God. He's twisting the meaning of scripture and setting it up as a kind of presumptuous test of God. Jesus responds and says, again it is written, and then Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Which does not mean, Jesus is not saying, you Satan shouldn't tempt me as God. 
No, Jesus is saying, I will not put my God, I, though the Son, I will not put the Father to the test. I'm not going to fall into this trap and test the word of my Father. Now, this is not, it's crucial you understand this, this is not Jesus and Satan lobbing proof texts at each other to see if one or the other will overwhelm the other. Uh, So Satan has a verse, but Jesus has a verse, and they marshal their proof texts, and let's see which one, does paper beat rock, or rock beat paper? Uh, That's not the way this is taking place here. Jesus is confronting Satan's manipulation of the scripture, his distortion of the text. Psalm 91 was not given to be a sort of name it and claim it kind of verse. Satan is utterly manipulating the meaning of that verse to precipitate impulsive and presumptive action on the part of Jesus that would ultimately amount to a willful testing of his father, and thus a functional denial of his father's trustworthiness. Uh, Moms and dads, you know this with your kids. Now, you you tell them a certain limitation that they're to have, and they hear you, but they're going to test it out anyway. And then, of course, they find out that fire really does burn them. Well, Well, what's the problem? They should have just trusted your word. They're they're sticking their hand in the fire or in the candle or whatever is a functional denial of their trust in you. Your word should have been enough. That's how this is working here. Uh, uh, Jesus, by uh, obeying Satan here and jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, would be denying the trustworthiness of God's word. And again, there's perhaps a lesson here for us. Uh, Satan knows the scriptures, and he knows how to manipulate them. He knows how to work on our frail consciences and our irrational minds to twist Scripture in precipitating all kinds of actions that will be sinful for us. And friends, I've seen Christians do this all the time. Satan is always trying to do this, uh, to misuse the Scriptures, to twist the Scriptures, to precipitate sin in our lives. You know this, the Bible can be distorted in all kinds of ways. Uh, Misquoting, quoting out of context, quoting out of proportion with other truths that are found in the Scriptures. You can talk about grace so much that you have so much grace you have no holiness. You can talk about holiness until you have so much legalism you have no grace. The whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is built on a satanic hermeneutic, a twisting of the scripture, a bending it to say things it was never intended to communicate. And friends, Satan is so irreverent, he's so blasphemous, he's such a liar that he will try to take the Bible and use it to precipitate sin and doubt and error and perversion in the lives of the Lord's people. Well, how does Jesus overcome this temptation? He goes Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In the original, it goes on to say, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you, the Israelites, tested him at Massa, at Meribah. What happened at Massa? What happened at Meribah? It's accounted for us in Exodus 17. The people of Israel demanded that Moses give them water as a way of testing the Lord and his love for them, using his promise that he would provide for them to manipulate him into giving them what they carnally wanted. In essence, they manipulate the word of the Lord into a kind of test. But friends, once again, you'll see Jesus doesn't do that here. He will succeed. He will pass the test. He will be the obedient son where Israel failed. Now, friends, consider with me thirdly and finally the third temptation. The first temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness in the face of immediate circumstances. The second temptation was to twist God's word into a kind of test of the Lord's goodness and trustworthiness. The third temptation was a temptation to seize immediate glory and power by breaking the first commandment. 
The third temptation was a temptation to seize immediate glory and power by breaking the first commandment. Look again at verse 8. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, I think this is visionary. There's no mountain in the world where actually visibly you could see everything. This is a visionary kind of experience. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I don't know why this comes to my mind, but I picture the angels all throughout this narrative wanting to break in and intervene, almost like, God, come on, we can take them. Let's go, you know. But also because they're watching with bated breath. What will the son do? Will he stray from his father's will? Everything depends on him being obedient. It's as though Satan discerns here in this last temptation uh, that he's not working by the subtle approach. Do you get that sense? Why don't you just bow down to me? Like It's like he thought, well, let's just take one, one big roll of the dice, right? But what's he doing? He's tempting Jesus to seize immediate glory and power by breaking the first commandment, by bowing to another God. And for Jesus in particular, I think this was a temptation for him to seize glory and power specifically by circumventing his humiliation, by avoiding the cross. Well, who knows what Satan understood about the cross at this point. I see no evidence in Scripture that Satan knew exactly how Jesus' ministry was going to play out, that he was going to go to the cross. Maybe he knew that, maybe he didn't. But it does seem he's trying to incite Jesus uh, into a suffering-free, cross-free, humiliation-free way of getting the nations. I know your Father has promised these to you. I can give the nations to you. I will give you them now if you will bow down to me. Friends, Satan loves to promise what he cannot give. Uh, he will make vain promises, he will lie to you, he will draw you into sin, and in the end you lose your soul. Now, as I read this, I think like, surely, if Jesus withstood temptation one and two, there's no way he's tempted by this. I mean, this just not subtle at all, I and mean, bowed down to me, Jesus knew better than that, how could this have tempted him in any way? But I've had reason to reconsider that this week of studying the passage. I, I encourage you to think of the timing of this account. Jesus is just getting started, just been anointed by the Spirit, commissioned by the Father to do his work. My friends, Jesus is staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. Uh, the, the rest of his life, the next three and a half years, is going to be filled with rejection and suffering and loneliness and disappointment, and then eventually crucifixion on the cross, the forsaking of his Father. And then you might think also of Jesus in the garden. Uh, asking the Father if, if by some way this cup could be removed from me. Uh, Jesus felt the burden of the mission he was called to fulfill. And in his humanity, there was a sense in which, in his humanity, the prospect of the cross was frightening to him. And here's Satan saying, with, with one, just kneel down on one knee, with one move, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. I will give you the nations if you bow down to me. Well, Jesus does not fail this final test. He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 13. We read this in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. And how we could wish 
that the first Adam would have said that. But where the first Adam failed, Jesus will not. He will banish Satan. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.13. And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Those are the three temptations. Let's consider in closing three implications for us. Three implications for us. What can we learn from this? What can we as God's people glean from this passage? What does it matter to you and to me that Jesus overcame these temptations? What's the significance for our lives? Three things. Number one, Christian, because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our example. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our example. You understand Jesus' temptations, in a sense, are of a piece with ours. And therefore, we could look to him as our example in our struggles with temptation. Now, as I said at the start of this message, there's so much more going on here than Jesus providing an example for us in how to fight temptation, but there's certainly not less. Jesus, as the new man who will bring many sons to glory, he provides a model for us in how to fight temptation. And so I ask you, what is the model? What's the example that Jesus set? What things could we learn for our life and godliness in our own conflicts with Satan, our own struggles with temptation, from the example that Jesus set? I think there's two things at least. Uh, Number one, Jesus prevailed over Satan's temptations because he knew the Bible. Uh, He knew the Word. Uh, No one lived better that uh, verse, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus knew the word. And and you you recognize when these temptations come, Jesus doesn't pull out the concordance and think, okay, what's a verse against idolatry? Uh, No, he reaches into his heart. The treasury, the storehouse of revealed truth that he knows about his Father, God's word. Now, I will say, if you have time in the midst of temptation to grab a concordance or to do a quick Google search or do that, But we're not always in that situation. When Satan attacks, often it's sudden. And the weapons you have for your warfare against Satan are the word of God. You have the sword of the Spirit, which breathes upon the word and brings the truth to life. You're not going to be successful in your conflict with Satan and temptation if you don't know the word of the Lord and what he has said. But there's a second thing, and this is as important, if not more important. Satan knew the word of the Lord. So secondly, by way of example, we see in Jesus that he had faith in the word. He loved the word. And he esteemed the truth of the word more highly than his own feelings and intuitions. I'll say that again. Jesus esteemed the truth and veracity of the word more highly than his own feelings and intuitions. My immediate circumstances are pressing in upon me. I feel a certain way. I feel that a certain course is right. I understand the word of God to teach differently. Well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go with my felt sense of need, or will I trust the Lord's word? Will I believe that what he has said is right? Let God be true and every man be a liar. Let God be true, though my own feelings are lying to me. I will do what the word of the Lord has said. And friends, this is so often the point at which temptation has the victory over us. Just being candid with you, I see this in my own heart. At times I have willfully given in to sin and temptation. 
I have been moved to doubt God's word. Is God's way really right? Did God really say, well, wouldn't God, you know, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, you know, I've had a hard week, you know, things have been difficult lately. I mean, to rationalize. And what's fueling that? Well, it's not a Bible study that's fueling that thinking. It's your own sense of desire. It's your own intuitions about yourself. It's your own feelings. Friends, the mark of a mature Christian is the mark of Jesus himself, is that we believe God's word better than we feel. If we're going to be successful in all of our battles with temptation, we need to know the word of the Lord and we need to love and trust the word of the Lord. What my father says is right. It's good. I will do what he has said. I will follow the path that he has set out for me. I will walk in the paths of righteousness where there is flourishing, even though I may not see it. Even though it appears to contradict my circumstances, I will trust the word of the Lord. And Jesus, as our example, who overcame temptation, models this for us. He says, the word of the Lord is powerful. We must know it, we must love it. And in knowing the word, and trusting the word, we will have victory in our temptations. Okay, now the second implication for us. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our example. Secondly, because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our helper. He's qualified to be our example. Because he overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our helper. Not only does Jesus provide us an example in how to overcome temptation, but because he was tempted as we are, he is qualified to help us in all of our temptations. And you know, if you've been with us any length of time, you know where I'm about to go. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friend, Jesus knows your pain. He's walked your road. He was a fully human man who suffered under temptation. Jesus was tempted. Jesus saw the deceitfulness of sin. Not only that, he saw it all the way through. You know, there comes a point in my own temptations that I kind of tap out. You know, the intensity gets to a certain point, and and I, I give in. Jesus never gave in, so he saw it to the greatest point of intensity. And he knows that where there is temptation, the Lord will provide a way of escape. There is no temptation that can ensnare you where there is not grace to be found to overcome that temptation. Jesus knows this. He sympathizes with you in your temptations, and not just with a knowledge of divine omniscience, but with a knowledge of human experience. He's walked your road. You say, I feel exhausted and run down and burnt out. Jesus knows how you feel. Uh, you say, I feel vulnerable. I feel weak. I haven't slept in days. Jesus knows how you feel. Well, I, I have chronic pain, and debilitating health issues. Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who was in every point tempted as we are, but he never sinned. And therefore, he's qualified to help us when we feel tempted. And what is the Lord's posture toward you, Christian, when you are in the throes of temptation? We see in Hebrews 4, it's one of sympathy. Isn't that something? 
uh, uh, I have this self-righteous tendency, like if I manage to succeed in a certain area, I expect everybody else should. You know, well, somehow we found a way, you know, me and mine, you know, we, we, we did the thing, so surely you can. That's not how Jesus views us. Jesus succeeds in his conflicts with the devil and his posture then toward us when we are tempted is one of sympathy. He has compassion on us in our temptation. Brother, sister, if you're here this morning and you feel ensnared by temptation, the heart of Jesus at all times toward you is one of sympathy, one of caring, compassion, and concern. He's saying, come on, my disciple. I'm with you. I'm for you. I have grace to help in time of need. I've been where you've been, and I want you to know the sure promises of my word. You cannot last the devil through the grace that I supply. I'm here with you. I'm here for you. Isn't it such a comfort, friends, that when you have been struggling with a particular sin struggle or just human weakness, when a brother or sister could come alongside you and say, you know what, I've been exactly where you've been. Oh, I'm very familiar with depression. Oh, I'm very familiar with anxiety. Oh, I, I, I am familiar with sexual temptation. I'm familiar with impatience and, and feelings of uncontrolled anger, I understand you. And I want to tell you how God has helped me, how helped we are when a brother or sister can genuinely come alongside us, can paraclete alongside us and help us in our temptation. That's how Jesus is pictured. And it is precisely because he succeeded in his conflict with Satan that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, that he is qualified also to be our helper. Third and final point, implication for us. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our example. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our helper. And this is the big headline news in Matthew 4. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our Savior. My friend, you don't know how badly you need Jesus to succeed in Matthew 4. He turns one stone into a morsel of bread and we're all damned. If he steps outside of his Father's will for a moment, nothing but condemnation for us. He's not qualified to be our Savior if he's the disobedient son. Do you see what Satan is going after? If he gets him to fail, there is nothing but sin and bondage and damnation for us Satan's subjects. But if he succeeds, where Adam failed, if he succeeds, where Israel failed, if he prevails over Satan and temptation, he is qualified to be our Savior. Then it can be true, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God. If he knows sin, if he turns stones into bread, if he decides, I'm going to test the veracity of my father in Psalm 91, it's over for us. We can't become the righteousness of God. He would be a sinner just like Adam, just like Israel. So much for our redemption. So much for the cross. So much for invitations to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. He's not qualified to save us. He's just like us. But if he succeeds, he can save us. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. 
because he never strayed, because he never failed. He is qualified as the righteous one to bring unrighteous ones to God. And now you can see in Matthew 4, right? As Satan takes Jesus through these stages and through these temptations, we're all waiting breathlessly. Jesus, don't fail. I need you to succeed where I've failed. I need you to be obedient where I was disobedient. I need you to withstand temptation where I failed. I need you to outlast the wicked one, to crush the serpent's head because I can't do it. I need a Savior who is righteous, a Savior who is without sin, that I might be saved. Because Jesus overcame sin, he is qualified to be our example. Because Jesus overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our helper. And because he overcame temptation, he is qualified to be our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the active obedience of Christ. Without it, there is no hope. And we thank you that that obedience did not just start and begin in baptism by John, that it didn't stop after temptation in the wilderness, but that our Savior was obedient even to the point of death on a cross that he might become an atonement for our sins, a propitiation, a sacrifice that we could be saved. Lord, please, please help us and move upon more of us to trust the obedience of our Jesus who has done what we could never do, who has been sinless where we were not, who has had victory over Satan where we have so often failed. Help us all to trust in what our Lord has done in our place. And then may we, saved by his grace, then follow in his example. And as we fight Satan ourselves, may we do so with his help. May you give us increasingly victory. You, you tell us in your word that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. We want to have the self-same victory that our Lord had. Give us help in this. Give us grace in this. Father, we pray even now for all those among us who are straying, who are going after temptation, after sin. We pray that you would call them back, that you would restore them, that we would restore them in a spirit of gentleness and grace. That they would find grace to help in time of their need, that they would find a helper in Jesus who is conquered in their place. 